You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life. Come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to all of our participants here for Palm Sunday, this beautiful, beautiful feast that we're preparing for. Hi, Annie. Hello, Father Hezekiah. How exciting to be ushering in Holy Week in just we, a couple of days. We have crossed, we have crossed the great sea of the fast. In our in the Byzantine tradition, the fast actually ends this Saturday. And then you feast on all kinds of meat and cheese and no. dairy. <laughs> no, we just tacked on another week that's more intense. That's so, even more intense. <laughs> you get a little reprieve on Palm Sunday, you can have a little bit of fish. But other than that, you're back into it. And and uh, but uh, but nevertheless, uh, a great mile marker, if you will, in our journey. Absolutely. I forgot to bring my my prop with me. I'll yeah, palm. this Bible study, I go cut some palm branches down. They're out there. I should go cut them down and bring them, waving them. Anyways, but you guys got the hint. You've been, we've done this before, but we're going to do it again because it's Palm Sunday, which is wonderful. Absolutely. And this year we're in Matthew. Yeah, well, it's, our, it's our practice here at the Institute for Palm Sunday, which I do believe in the Latin tradition is customarily the passion narrative. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But of course, we're going to be getting into the passion in the coming weeks. So we want to spend our time on Palm Sunday and kind of sink our teeth into this beautiful feast. So that's what we're going to do because you're going to get to Mass on Sunday and you're going to get the blessing of the palms and the blessing of the palms has a gospel reading to it. And that gospel reading is given to us from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21 verse 1 through 11, which is what we're going to focus on today. So, my brothers and sisters, we're not going through, you know, 18 pages of the gospel account of the narrative of the Passion of Christ. We're just going to take these 11 verses and make sure we have our Old Testament background in place. And that's going to be our Sunday Gospel Reflection this coming Sunday, Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. So let's go ahead and open our Bibles there, Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, starting with verse 1. All right. You ready to go? I'm ready to go. Okay, here we go. When Jesus and the disciples drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find an ass tethered and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them here to me. And if anyone should say anything to you, reply, the master has need of them. Then he will send them at once. This happened so that what had been spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Say to daughter Zion, behold, your king comes to you meek and riding on an ass and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had ordered them. 
They brought the ass and the colt and laid their cloaks over them, and he sat upon them. The very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and strewed them on the road. The crowds preceding him and those following kept crying out and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was shaken and asked, Who is this? And the crowds replied, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. All right. So, first of all, I just kind of want to get our geographical bearings, if that's all right, Father. So, last week when we were together for SGR, well, last week, Sunday, Mm -hmm. at Mass, we were hearing the story of the raising of Lazarus, and Mm -hmm. and you were talking about how right after this is the entry into Jerusalem right? from, like, a chronological standpoint. So, can you show us his route from there to here? Just go to John chapter 12, verse 1 really quick, and you're going to see six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, right? So in the current lectionary, the current the Novus Ordo lectionary, that this, this gospel is proclaimed on the Sunday before Palm Sunday. Right. But actually, it's just... It's the, like day, the before day before Palm Sunday, wow. right? So, yeah. so, so there you have it. So it's very close in its time frame. Bethany, we pulled up the map. We'll pull it up again here, and you can see Bethany and Bethphage. Bethphage is is really just the top of the Mount of Olives, hmm. and or just right there. It's two miles from Bethany to Bethphage, which is where he, where in chapter twenty one, verse one, we pick up the story. There you see in, in Matthew 21, verse 1, he came, right? He drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, or how you pronounce Bethphage, in the Mount of Olives. And it's just there. Right now, up on that area is the Russian Orthodox Monastery of the Ascension. And this is the Mount of Olives. So, again, now, how far is are these places? It's about two miles from Bethany to Bethphage. And it's only about a mile from Bethphage to the Temple Mount hmm. because it's just down the hill. I mean, you got to think of the Mount of Olives, the eastern slope of the mount is just, it's a hill, right? It's not even really a mountain of person. I mean, it's kind of a mountain, but not in the mountain. You think of like Mount Everest. It's not Mount Everest. Trust me. It's more like, <laughs> it's more like the rolling hills of, uh, uh, of California. Um, and the, the slope up the Mount of Olives is fairly steep, but you can walk up it. I, I take pilgrims, we walk up it, right? So you can make yeah. that trek from the Mount of Olives, or sorry, from the from the Temple Mount through the Garden of Gethsemane up the hill in, you know, I don't know, if you're in shape, you might make it in a half an hour. Oh, really? Father Hezekiah, I think like five breaks along the way, and eventually I get up there, but, <laughs> but there is. So it's not very far, two miles from Bethany to Bethphage and one mile from Bethphage to to the Temple Mount, and then from the Temple Mount up to Mount Sion, or where the upper room is, is I'm just going to throw it out there a mile and a half. Okay, Okay. two miles, maybe. Yeah. All right. Well, that leads me to my next question. If this is such a short distance, and Mm -hmm. Jesus is a walker, most of the time, why does he need to ride on on a colt and an ass? Um, well, because he's exhausted from raising Lazarus from the dead, I mean, it's not easy. 
<laughs> no, no, this is a, is, a, is a good question. And to answer that question, we got to go back to the Old Testament to First Kings. First Kings chapter one, keeping our hand, of course, in Matthew chapter 21, which I did not keep my hand there, but I just flipped back there. Okay. Matthew chapter 21. And I'm actually going to go back in Matthew chapter 20, verse 29 and following. And here Matthew picks up the story of Jesus coming from Jericho down in the valley. Jericho is now, you know, is a, is a, I don't know. It's a day's journey up to the, up to Jerusalem at three quarters of a day journey. I mean, nowadays you get in the bus and you're down in half an hour or so like that. Yeah. But here, as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd, this is chapter 20, verse 29, followed him as, and behold, two blind men sitting by the roadside, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, have mercy on us, son of David. The mm. crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Okay. Now I just bring this up to you because because we oftentimes hear that phrase, son of David, in the New Testament, right? This is Bible talk. It's Jesus talk. It's whatever, son of David. It's one of the titles of the people are screaming out son of David, right? But you kind of let that sink in, right? Who is the son of David? Solomon. So, yeah, King Solomon. Well, what did King Solomon do? Why are they crying out son of David? Well, the ultimate, well, I say ultimately, we can take it cer certainly on a, on like on a, on a, historical level there in uh, at the time the people of God are looking for the coming of the Messiah right the Messiah is the king who is going to be a descendant of David he has to be a descendant of David it's part of the nature of the Messiah right right because going back we've done this swords and serpents series so many times about this the importance of the family of, of Judah of course David comes from Judah. We looked at the passage the other day, well, whatever it was, a week, two ago, um, with our Sunday Gospel Reflections about the calling of, of Jesse's son, David. David has a son, Solomon, and Solomon inherits the throne of his father, and Solomon does one big old thing that's really important, and that is he builds the temple of God. And they're expecting the Messiah to come to free them from the oppression of the of, of, of the Romans, yeah, to free them from the dictatorship of Herod, who is a megalomaniac who himself was claiming to be the Messiah, who had rebuilt and refurbished the temple and it was glorious and it was his proof. That was, you gotta understand this, this is the proof that you're the Messiah, is that you rebuild the temple. You do what Solomon did. Of course, Jesus is going to rebuild the temple, right? But we know that temple is going to be rebuilt in three days, and that's the temple of his body in which the true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. Okay, here they are crying out, son of David, right? son of David, son of David. And they're not the only ones crying out, son of David, because we're about, in Matthew, about to get a whole bunch of people that are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David, right? right well, why right. are they all crying, doing this? Because they're, they're, they're thinking, is this the guy? He's the one, right? They've, heard, well, they've been hearing what he's been doing. And now he, you have to understand how intense this moment is that Jesus picks this moment to appear in Jerusalem because the place is, is I, I looked it up before how many thousands upon thousands of people to send on Jerusalem for Passover. The place was like, it was inundated with people that were, uh, were, were, were on edge. These people were looking for the coming of the Messiah. They were expecting the coming of the Messiah. They wanted the coming of the Messiah. And the, the Roman soldiers are there in the midst of all this is a very tense situation. 
And to cry out Hosanna to the son of David at that guy is an act of treason. Mm. So to understand how intense the situation was, you have to get in that historical context. And then to answer your question. So what Jesus does now is he sees what's going on. He hears what's going on. He knows what they're talking about. He, he, He realizes that they have heard that he's about to enter Jerusalem and imagine all of Jerusalem. I mean, it's not as though, you know, there's uh they're at the, you know, Woodstock and there's 10 stages to go look at different bands. They're all hanging around Jerusalem waiting for Passover for with nothing better to do than, well, this guy who just raised somebody from the dead is coming over that hill right now you guys gotta realize this right? they're down in the temple mount they're all talking they're all doing the, the sacrificial things and they're and they're and they're debating and they're and they're all in the city and jesus from nazareth the guy that just raised the guy from the dead over there in bethany he's he's, he's coming over the hill right now and they would have gone running up that hill Okay, and as the as the as the as the thing gained momentum, you can imagine what the Romans were thinking, and what the Pharisees were thinking. We can go back to John now. Do something we didn't do last last week, and get a little bit of context of who those people that were that were there. But before we do that, we're in First Kings, so let's do sure. this. Okay, because at this moment, at this intense moment, Jesus says, "Stop! I'm not walking into Jerusalem." I'm riding into Jerusalem. And why? Because of what happened here in 1 Kings chapter 1, when King David was on his deathbed. King David call, uh, said, call to me. I'm in, I'm in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 32. King David said, call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king. The king said, take with you the servants of your Lord and cause Solomon, my son, to ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. We've talked about Gihon in our Bible studies, right? The importance of Gihon is the river of paradise. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet, their anointed king over Israel, then blow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon. In verse 38, so Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet and Benani the son of Jehoiada and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and caused Solomon to ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. And there Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. And then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, long live King Solomon. Yeah, long live the son of David. This is what Jesus does. He stops the whole thing because he knows what's going on. He knows what they're talking about. He knows what they're discussing among themselves and not just a few people. Thousands upon thousands of people are, 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 and they're coming up there to meet him and he sees them coming and they see him coming and he says, stop. The son of David rides into Jerusalem to be proclaimed as king. And that was about the last straw that the Jews could take, that the Pharisees could take, because you have to come back with me now to the gospel of of John to a point that we skipped last week, because the text we were looking at didn't really focus on this aspect, but I have to do it with you now. And that is John chapter 11, 
Jesus comes to Lazarus in verse 17. Now, when Lazarus, when, sorry, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus was already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about, there it is, two miles off. <laughs> Look, I didn't have to actually go to Google and type in how far it was. Okay, it's two, it's two miles. Just ask John. It's right, oh, well. exactly. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So here they are, adding Mary and Martha in the back. It's okay, sweetheart. It's going to be all okay. We, you know, and they're, and they're there and they're mourning with them and so forth like that. Now Jesus enters and Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performed many signs. And in verse 53, so from that day on, they took counsel how to put him to death. So there it is. The very people that are mourning with the sisters are the very ones who turn the Lord in to the Pharisees. And that's the environment. They're looking to kill him. They are not looking to arrest him anymore. They're not looking to, you know, whatever. They're looking to kill him. And Lazarus too, right? Lazarus to death too. No, I'm glad you I'm glad you pointed that out in verse verse uh, chapter 12, verse 10. So the chief priests planned to put Lazarus also to death, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believed in Jesus. I mean, that is wow. It's unbelievable, right? Yeah. And it's in that moment, in that context, then that we we have um we have well the the story of Jesus's entrance in the gospel of John, but here we are in the gospel of Matthew chapter 21. Um, and there's your answer. That's why he stopped and said, I'm riding in. Okay. And so then why is the crowd? I mean, I can understand the excitement and things, and they probably understood exactly what Jesus was doing. Why did they then put the palms on the ground and their cloaks on the ground and cut down branches and all that to put in his path? Good. Okay. To do this, we got to do a little bit of Old Testament Bible study. So let's go and um, kind of have a little bit of fun in the Old Testament, because certainly what they were doing was not just like, you know, this is, well, this wouldn't this, this be seems nice. nice. Yeah. No, 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 no. So let's go. Let's go. I don't know how we're going to do this. Maybe we go backwards. We're going to start with Second Maccabees. Okay. Let's okay. start with Second Maccabees and then we're going to go backwards to kind of understand what's going on. So let's go Second Maccabees chapter 10. Second Maccabees chapter 10. You'll remember the story of the Maccabees and the adulteration of the temple with all sorts of pagan sacrifice going on. You can read back in first Maccabees about that. But in second Maccabees chapter 10, the Maccabee brothers actually take the temple mount. And there you chapter 10, verse one in Maccabeus and his followers, the Lord leading them on recovered the temple and the city. And they tore down the altars, which had been built in the public square by the foreigners and also destroyed the sacred precincts. They purified the sanctuary and made another altar of sacrifice and so forth in verse six. And they celebrated it for eight days with rejoicing in the manner of the feast of booths. Now, what is the feast of booths? Well, the feast of booths is, is one of the harvest feasts of the Jews, but that feast had also a, a it has as all the feasts of the Jews have multiple layers, the natural layer, which is 
the which is the the harvest layer right and then on top of that uh during the time of the exodus it they began celebrating the feast of booths to commemorate god's dwelling among his people and protection during the time of the exodus okay you can pick that up in leviticus chapter 23 if you want to go there very quickly leviticus 23 verse oh 33 and following okay and the lord said this is 20 leviticus 23 33 and the lord said to moses say to the people of israel on the 15th day of the seventh month and for seven days is the feast of booze of the lord on the first day shall be a convocation you shall do no labor laborious work seven days shall you present offerings by fire to the lord and on the eighth day shall be a holy convocation and so forth okay come down with me to verse 39 on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, there's your harvest level, right? right. You okay. shall keep the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day a solemn rest. And you shall take the first fruits, the fruits, first God, goodly trees, branches of palm trees, hello, and boughs of leafy trees and the willows and of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord. Mm, very interesting. And then I'm just going to skip over verse 43, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord of God. So there's your second layer now. In that natural harvest layer, you have the Exodus layer in which God granted protection to his people in finding an oasis or the cloud of glory overshadowing them during the hot sun and so forth like that. That's what they commemorated. And to do that, they would take branches in their hand. Well, first of all, they'd build booths on top of their houses. We discussed this, I think, last week very quickly. Yeah. But booths on top of their houses, they would wave these branches in the air and they would chant Psalm 118. Now stop before we go there. Because at this point, they would take and hold uh, citrus fruit in their hand. And for, for the Jews, it was a commemoration of God's protection, his dwelling among them but also a recalling of paradise because when God dwells among his people, then paradise is restored. Yes, yeah. it's very important. So we're about to go to Zechariah. In Zechariah, they're going to be looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. Yeah, and it's going to help us connect to Palm Sunday. And they would, and so, okay, so there's that layer. There's another layer that then is attached to it over time. And that is the layer of the kings. It, it, this is a one, the great harvest day of the Jews. And so, of course, they've got their food, they've got their wine, they've got all the goods brought in from the field. Hey, who do you want to celebrate? The king, of right? Course. And so over time, this became, became a, um, a, a, a feast. They would use two things. When a new king came to the throne, they would use this feast to celebrate. They would use the rites of this feast to celebrate. It was also the annual feast of the king, the Feast of Booths, commemorating the king. And thus you get Psalm 118. Let's take a look at that. Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verse 25, save us, we beseech you, literally, Hosanna, we beseech thee, O Lord, O Lord, we beseech thee, give us success, blessed be he who enters in the name of the Lord. Sound familiar? Yeah. We bless you from the house of the Lord, the Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. Thou art my God, and I will give thanks to thee. Thou art my God, I will extol thee. And so forth. Okay, so so this is the psalm that they would chant to commemorate the coming of the king, to commemorate the feast of booze. And they would carry these branches. They would light big torches in the court of the women, right? You see that about the light that connects back to John we talked about before, right? The woman caught in adultery. 
and so forth. And they would carry these branches singing Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, fast forward, Babylonian exile, the kingdom falls, the people are saying, what's going on? I thought that we were going to be led by the son of David. And then the return from Babylon and what happens, the glory cloud doesn't reappear. The people of God are not really faithful, all sorts of problems that take place. And and so what happens during this time period from the Babylonian exile, from the return to Babylon to the coming of Jesus is kind of just a general movement of focus of God's people from the earthly king, the line of David in which they have no hope to the divine king in which they're going to place their hope. And in this period of this transition, it's very interesting in the prophets, we get all sorts of, of, of comments about, about the son of David being the son of God. There's this now this mixture of the human and divine that happens in the prophets. We pick that up in Zechariah. Let's turn there. The prophet Zechariah, chapter 14, Zechariah chapter 14. Or maybe we even look at chapter 13. We recall for a moment Jesus' words in the Gospel of John, I am the source of living water. Zechariah chapter 13. You there, Annie? You found Zechariah? I am here. Chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, now whenever you read in the prophets, on that day, they're talking about the Messiah coming, right? When all things are made well, when all this nonsense about the Babylonian exile is gone and beyond us, When that day comes, that's what they're talking about. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. Hello, Christians. Yes? Sounds familiar. Mm, Sounds familiar. Chapter 14, verse 1. Behold, a day of the Lord is coming. And look at, look, now we're going to come down. Verse 7 or verse 6. On that day. There shall be neither frost, cold nor frost. There shall be continuous day. Now, listen to this. Remember the court of the women being so brilliant with big fires. that it said Jerusalem was lit up 24 hours a day. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the book of Revelation. Jesus said, there will be no night anymore. Be light all the time. Hmm. Yeah, not, not day or night, for at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. Remember the pitchers of water and the Feast of Booze. They would carry these silver pitchers from the spring of Gihon, pour them on the temple, on the altar in the temple, until water flowed out of the temple, out of the gates and down the steps. On that day, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem like, like paradise restored. Verse 9, and the Lord will become the king. Hmm. See that? All right. And verse 16, then everyone that survives of all the nations that come out against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booze. The Jews believed that when the Messiah came, that all the other feasts would fall away. And the feast of booths would be celebrated now forever. Why? Because God is dwell- the Feast of Booths is God dwelling with us. Everything else falls away now. If God is dwelling with us, truly dwelling with us, then paradise is restored. Christians who chant, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Mm-hmm. It's a reason why that is in every single liturgy. 
Blessed is he who comes to know. Now, let's turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Because that's our, that's my, my little bit of Old Testament Bible study for you there now, guys. And now we're, we're here and we can understand what's going on. I think we just go ahead and read this from verse, verse 6. The, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the ass and the colt and put their garments on them. And he sat thereon. Most of the crowds spread their garments on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went before him and followed him and shouted Psalm 118. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. And they started waving the branches, throwing off P P Passover, because they, if this is the one, it's going to be the Feast of Booths. The Lord's going to dwell in our midst. And when he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, who is this? I just, I, um, I, I'm going to stop for a second, Annie. I know, I'm sure you have another question or two, but when you guys are at mass on Sunday and, you know, you're, uh, you're, uh, you got the usher there and he hands you the, the piece of palm. <laughs> First of all, I recommend Institute of Catholic Culture people. I recommend you make your own, uh, bouquet your own branches to bring to church on sunday i have blessed by the priest okay sure they're thinking that you're crazy but we're part of the institute of catholic culture they you thought jesus crazy. and the apostles were crazy too so go down and cut some branches down you know these guys didn't have little you know scissors they were ripping branches off the tree stop for a second we're gonna pause this video I'm going to rip a palm branch off so you can see what it looks like. And we're going to cut it here and we're going to come back in a second. All right. <laughs> here we are, Annie. Did it look like this? I did rip it off. Look. Wow. I, I didn't cut it. I ripped it off with my hands. It broke. And that, my friends. You are out of breath. <laughs> is a palm for Palm Sunday, Jesus <laughs> style. Yeah? Now this? Okay. You know? Now. I live in Cincinnati. This is what I can get. <laughs> well, listen, did you hear from the psalm? Willow branches, palm branches, myrtle branches. It wasn't just a little thing you ordered from the palm dealer. You know? Yeah. Make yourself a branch. You don't have to go crazy about it, but something you can hold in your hand. Or when you go to mass and they hand you a single little thing, grab a handful and you carry that with you because it is your sign that you believe that Jesus is the king. It's not to be laid down on your pew and put, made a little cross out of so I can stick it in my pocket. No, it's your sign that he's the king of your life. He is the king of this society, the king of the world. And you proclaim that publicly, which is an act of treason. It's an act of treason today. Yes? This whole thing going on, it's all, Jesus is our king. He's the ruler of our life. He sets the laws for us. And no earthly president or earthly king is, is, is going to take his place. They are only legitimate to the extent that they are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because there's only one king. 
And a king is only a king if he's in the image and likeness of the king. Now, I get on my hobby horse for a minute because I think you have other questions. Yeah, Father, I do have another. So I have several questions. Um, I wanted to go back to John for a second because you were talking about um, the Feast of Booths being um, a Feast of Kings. And we were reading about Solomon being anointed in First Kings. So then does that bring more significance, knowing all of that, to the fact that Mary anoints Jesus in John chapter 12? Oh, well, well certainly. And the fathers of the church mentioned this. And what, I, what, is, what is important, and then now we can kind of go from the glorious, the glorious Palm Sunday procession to the reality of what happens. There's a beautiful phrase in the anaphora the eucharistic prayer of saint john chrysostom with these blessed powers master who loves mankind we also cry out and say holy are you and all holy you and your only begotten son and your holy spirit holy are you and all holy and magnificent is your glory who so loved the world as to give your only begotten son that everyone who believes in him might not perish, but might have eternal life, who having come and fulfilled all the divine plan for us in the night in which he was delivered up, or rather delivered himself up for the life of the world. Mm. See, so in, in our theology, Jesus, yes, is arrested and crucified. But what we're concerned is not so much what they did to him, but what he did to them, yeah. my, my dad used to love, tell me when I was a kid, he'd say, he said, uh, I say, I was, you know, having a hard time with this person or this person wasn't treating me right at school or whatever the case. He says, kill their hatred with your love, kill their hatred with your love. And this is what Jesus did in the midst of the sinful hatred of this world. Jesus filled that darkness and that emptiness with his life. Jesus goes to the cross willingly. He's in, he is crucified on the cross by what they did to him, but he's enthroned on the cross by what he did for us and reveal the breadth and depth of his love for us. The anointing of Jesus by Mary is an anointing for his burial, as Jesus says, because it's his burial that reveals his crucifixion, burial, his passion, which reveals him as king. Because God is love. And there's no greater love. There's no greater revelation of love than the one who lays down his life for his friend. So the passion of Jesus, his, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, is a revelation of who he is. And who he is is king of the universe. And yes, then, he is anointed for that an announcement, that revelation of his kingship, both as burial and his enthronement at the same time. Wow. Okay. Um, let's go back to Matthew just real quick. And I don't know if you'll be able to answer this or not, but it says in, in the translation for the lectionary, it sounded a little bit different in, in the uh, RSV that we were reading. It says the crowd or when when he entered jerusalem the whole city was shaken i think mm -hmm. the rsv said it was stirred the mm -hmm. whole city was shaken and asked who is this 
did the people of the city really not know who mm. Jesus was? That's I mean, good, why were they shaken? No, that's, a, that's a good question. I think I'm just gonna say there's multiple layers here. First of all, yeah. they're shaken because of what we just said, like, sure. He, he raised a guy from the dead. The Jews are about uh, the, 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 I should say Jewish authorities uh, want to kill him. Is he the Messiah? Is he not the Messiah? This is what sh is, is, is shaking them. Hmm. The whole, as in the gospel of John says, look, the whole world has gone after him. The place was in an uproar. But then the question of who he is remains. And this is fundamental to the gospel. Those who have faith to him come, faith in him come to know him. But those who struggle in their faith struggle to know him. They struggle to know him for who he is. Again and again, those who believe they are so knowledgeable and so whatever, fail to understand and perceive who he is, even where he's from or where his parents are from or who his parents are. It becomes almost a comedy act in the gospel yeah, by yeah. the end of it, that those that come early in the gospel and say, we know who you are, end up not even knowing who he is on a natural level, let alone a supernatural level. And maybe they could see him as a, a wonder worker, a miracle worker. But they didn't see God in the man. And that's the fundamental problem that's going to happen where the people transition then from singing Son of David to crucify him, crucify him. Well, yeah, that actually leads me to what I wanted to talk about next, because the crowds reply. These are the, the people that have just said Hosanna to the Son of David. And then when they ask, who is this? They reply, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. It's almost like they're already losing their their. Uh, well, I don't want to say necessarily losing their faith, but they're like taking a step down from what they were just doing, weren't they? Okay, but you're coming in it from a Christian perspective. That's true. Right. That's true. A revelation yeah. of understanding that 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 this is this is not only this is not only the Messiah, but this is God in the flesh. And yeah. you might be saying, well, of course, no, the Messiah is God in the flesh. Is the Father has guys. Yeah, but from an Old Testament perspective, they're still kind of trapped and wrap their minds yeah, around this thing, right? Okay, Which we actually point, should yeah. try to wrap our mind around too. We all we get yeah. lazy with the gospel. It's all too obvious, right? Well, no, it's not. And you got to grapple with this thing that God, the eternal God, who knows neither time nor space, who exists in the flesh and is born of a of a woman. And, and and so and so this the stirring up of the crowd the is is, is ought to be expected yeah Annie, i want to turn back to father alexander schmeyman because i think our time is getting a little short here yeah and uh so that we can we can bring this to a close okay absolutely and now i i do want everybody it's a bit of a long section of, of quotation so if you have time well just listen from the liturgical point of view, the gospel of Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus, is the pre-feast of Palm Sunday, the entrance of our Lord into Jerusalem. Both feasts have a common theme, triumph and victory. The raising of Lazarus reveals the enemy, which is death. Palm Sunday announces the meaning of victory as the triumph of the kingdom of God, as the acceptance by the world of its only king. Jesus Christ. In the life of Jesus, his only visible triumph was the solemn entrance into the holy city. 
Up to that day, he consistently rejected all attempts to glorify him. But six days before the Passover, he not only accepted to be glorified, he himself provoked and arranged this glorification by doing what the prophet Zechariah announced. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee lowly and riding upon an ass. He made it clear that he wanted to be acclaimed and acknowledged as the Messiah, the king and the redeemer of Israel. The gospel narratives stress all these messianic features, the palms, the cry of the crowd, Hosanna, the acclamation of Jesus as the son of David and the king of Israel. The meaning is clear. The history of Israel is now coming to its end. For the purpose of that history was to announce and prepare the kingdom of God, the advent of the Messiah. And now it is fulfilled. For the king enters his holy city and in him all all the prophecies, all the expectations find their fulfillment. He inaugurates his kingdom. The liturgy of Palm Sunday commemorates this event. With palms in our hands, we identify ourselves with the people of Jerusalem. Together with them, we greet the lowly king, singing Hosanna to him. But what is the meaning of this today for us? First, it is our confession of Christ as our king and Lord. We forget so often that the king that the kingdom of God is already is ha, has already been inaugurated that on the day of our baptism we may we were made citizens of it and promised to put our loyalty to it above all other loyalties. We must remember that for a few hours Christ was indeed king on earth in this world of ours for a few hours only and in one city. But as in Lazarus, we have recognized the image of each man in this one city, we acknowledge the mystical center of the world and indeed the whole of creation. For such is the biblical meaning of Jerusalem, the focal point of the whole history of salvation and redemption, the holy city of God's advent. Therefore, the kingdom inaugurated in Jerusalem is a universal kingdom, embracing in its perspective all men and the totality of creation for just a few hours yet these hours were de decisive the ultimate hour of jesus the hour of fulfillment by god the fulfillment of our of all promises all of his decisions it came at the end of the entire process of preparation revealed in the bible it was the end of all that god did for man and thus at the most solemn moment of our liturgical celebration when we receive from the priest, a palm branch. We renew our oath to our king and confess his kingdom as the ultimate meaning and content of our life. We confess that everything in our life and in the world belongs to Christ and that nothing can be taken away from its sole real owner. For there is no area of life in which he is not to rule, to save, and to redeem. We proclaim the universal and total responsibility of the church for human history and uphold her universal mission. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting 
instituteofcatholicculture.org.